The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 23rd, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Clinton Foundation will not accept donations from foreign countries or corporations, which is excellent strategy unless you like money and you're a foundation. If you're one of those, let's do this without the money, that's no problem. But yeah, a lot of the money coming from overseas. One way I thought, an idea I had for the Clinton Foundation to get around the current round of criticism is to just decouple those titular Clintons from the foundation, move them out, move George Clinton in, you know? Get up on the downstroke via antiretroviral drugs in sub-Saharan Africa could work. So this announcement, no foreign money, no corporations, is an acknowledgement that they are fighting to eradicate a medical condition. And that medical condition is a headache, an electoral headache. This headache provided by the team of Trump-Pence. The foundation donors included corporations and individuals with significant matters before the State Department. Not good. I'm going to guess when he said not good, that was Trump riffing because the rest was on the teleprompter. That was a personal protest. Now, I've read about what the donors got for their donations, and the answer is nothing provable. Sure, the Crown Prince of Bahrain gave millions and requested a meeting, and eventually the Crown Prince got a meeting, but he's the Crown Prince. Bahrain's a pivotal country in the Middle East. He's the kind of guy that you want your Secretary of State meeting with. If you can get a few million dollars for polio eradication tied to that meeting you should be having anyway, it's not bad. More importantly, what this is, what the Clinton Foundation is and shows is how power works. What we have discovered via the Freedom of Information Act is that powerful people wield power as power is wielded. Now, I know right now we're in a moment of populism and populism detests power, but it shouldn't because the United States has the most power in the world. It is a great resource. Americans hating the powerful makes as much sense as a Saudi hating the oil fields. Power sometimes does work in nefarious ways, but there's not really much evidence that that's what's going on here. The Clinton Foundation does a lot of good things, but people do want to donate to it for reasons other than charity and munificence. It is to curry favor with the Clintons. That is true. The Clintons know that because they know power, and that's what makes their foundation so good. If the impetus to donating to the Clinton Foundation weren't to curry favor with the Clintons, then there would be no need for the foundation. You could just have the UN or the Red Cross do all the good work in the world. In fact, if altruism were running so rampant through the world, we wouldn't even need the Red Cross and the Red Crescent and the UN to do all that they do. The problem here is the appearance of impropriety. Maybe there was some over-the-line quid pro quo that will one day be proved. But right now, the biggest problem is how the eponymous Clinton talks about her eponym. I think the answer is transparency, and there is no doubt that there will be uh, complete transparency about uh, donations. But when you have hundreds of thousands of people who are donating, uh, as they do, um, I think that uh, the best uh, answer for that is what we have been doing for the last several years, and that is uh, to be transparent about it and let, you know, let voters and others make their judgment. 
Well, there was no transparency. We're finding out about what the foundation did via a lawsuit that was brought by Judicial Watch. And before voters could make a judgment, the foundation announces they did nothing wrong. So even if they didn't do anything wrong, it's another circumstance where Hillary Clinton is shown to have backtracked on public pronouncements. On the show today, we spiel about, well, it starts with Ryan Lochte, it ends with the Paralympics, and in between, we got some poisoning. But first, Ortberg Kaleo. Ortberg Kaleo, Ortberg Kaleo, injury attorneys, one 888 No, that's not who Ortberg and Kaleo are. Ortberg's Mallory Ortberg, she is Slate's advice columnist, Dear Prudy, and Kaleo or an Icelandic outfit by way of Austin, or maybe Austin by way of Icelandic. Anyway, they shot a video in a volcano. They're Kaleo, and they're here first. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Kaleo is the name of the band that is just about the last bit of Hawaiian we're going to say during this interview because Kaleo's an Icelandic band. They've relocated to Austin. Turns out the U.S. is a little bit bigger market than Iceland. And lead singer J.J. Julius Sun is right here. Now, now J.J., yeah. you've helped me out as an American by calling yourself J.J., but really, <laughs> to an Icelandic speaker, you would identify yourself as what? Um, Jökull would be my first given name. Jökull? Jökull, yeah. Jökull, Jökull. Yeah, you're not going to get it. And what's the second J? Julius son? Julius son, yeah. So that means your father was a Julius? Yeah. yeah. And when I say his father... That's how it works in Iceland. You're always... A, your second name is, is your father's first name. Yes. And it's also... Is this true? The genetically most similar country? You share a genetic code with your countrymen more so than any other country? Have you heard that? Did they not tell <sighs> Probably, you Probably, man. I mean, we we actually have an app for the dating market. You know, when you go home with someone, you have an app to, to check if, if you guys... <laughs> how, how related you are. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? So the, the Icelandic Tinder also has a genetic component yeah, to make sure you're not dating yeah, your first cousin. It's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you, at least in your music, have a lot of different influences. And it sounds like the album's A-B, right? A slash B. And the A part, which is the bluesier, stompier part, that sounds like Mississippi Delta stuff. Helen Wolf and things that you'd find in a shack with, you know, a jukebox in the corner. Right. Yeah. How'd the music come to you? How'd you hear that sort of music? Uh, from an early age, really, you know, since my dad kind of um, raised me, you know, I grew up listening to, to stuff that he grew up listening to that I liked, you know, music from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He kind of introduced me to all this all this stuff that I really liked, and I, I kind of, you know, went deeper and, and searched for some Delta Blues and uh, 
And yeah, so so it kind of spoke to me. Now, the B part of AB is lush, instrumental. Sounds a little like Cigarose, although I don't want to, you know, stereotype you as Icelandic. Mm. So where's that stuff come from? What's the influence there? I, I mean, inspiration. I take inspiration from everywhere, and I write very different songs. So I thought the A and B concept was a good way of showing the diversity of the band and the different sounds. So... I mean, that's kind of the idea that A-side is, is more upbeat, it's more rock and roll, really. B-side has, has more of those songs, which are, you know, which people want to label as, as folk or country or, you know, uh, indie, whatever it is. I try not to think about it too much, you know, I just write a song and I try to treat it the right way and, and have it happen naturally. Do you sing differently, do you think, on, on the two different kinds of songs? Because when I hear the A-side stuff, I say to myself, I can't tell that guy's not an American or an Englishman, you know, trying to be American. But on the B-side stuff, I think I can. I think I sing each song differently, really. Oh, yeah. Okay. I try to I try to relate to an emotion or, or feeling when I'm, I'm writing a song. And, uh, you know, I didn't sing falsetto until I wrote uh, All the Pretty Girls. I didn't whistle until I wrote Automobile. So it's, it's just kind of, yeah. How'd you know you could pull it off? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think, is it my perception, or it does seem for a small country, Iceland, or I could say correctly, Iceland, has a lot of musical exports, Sigurós, um, what is it, Of Men and Monsters? Of Ma- Monsters and Men, yeah. Monsters and Men, of course, Bjork. Mm-hmm. Per capita, the country of Iceland is the same size as the U.S. city of Corpus Christi. Have you heard of Corpus Christi? I'm not. It's in Texas. <laughs> it's about 320,000. All right. Not too many famous people. The Reverend Horton Heat is from Corpus Christi. But per capita, Iceland is churning out much bigger musical acts than even Corpus Christi or a, or a place of similar size. Why do you imagine that might be the case? Yeah, I don't know if there's something in the water or what it is, you know. But I think people are fearless, you know. People are creative in Iceland and, and, and uh, most people I know play multiple bands and, uh, you know, have good taste in music. So. It's funny you use that word fearless. I was reading a lot about Iceland, and the Vikings play a big part in your national consciousness, even though it may not be true at times. Right. Yeah. I know that when Iceland was doing well in Euro, everything was about the Vikings. Yeah. Yeah. But in this last presidential election, the uh, the guy who eventually won, he's a historian, and one of his big points is, you people have totally mythologized the Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> we are as non-viking as we are viking right <laughs> yeah but yeah good, yeah different different views on that yeah but it's good for a, an artist i guess to embrace the most heroic view at times. sure i mean i don't get lost in it but <laughs> it's uh, yeah. now the last thing i want to ask you about you shot a video in a volcano right which which song was that uh way down we go yeah so that's another one of your big songs uh a non-active volcano uh, active. It hasn't, active hasn't, volcano. hasn't erupted in about a thousand years uh-huh though. so Do you have to get a permit for that yeah, I mean, we we contacted the people. Uh, it's it's a very special place. We knew that we it was it was possible to go in there, and and we thought, you know, why not? Reached out to the people that work there. You can you can actually go if you go to Iceland. You uh, you, you can go down there and and, yeah. and see for yourself. And shoot but, your own video. Well, yeah. well, I mean, what about did you trucking in the amps and the equipment and stuff? I mean, seriously, we were there for twenty six hours. Really? Yeah, you have to you can you have to walk for forty five minutes. You have to park the cars because there's old lava and and you have to walk through the rocks and stuff. So we had a a chopper or a helicopter uh, bring bring the gear up and then we would walk. And uh, 
yeah, we played live, you know, so we had to bring everything down, man, instruments, drum sets, um, amplifiers, whatever it was. So it, it turned out great, but it was a lot of work. It was, so this was no lip lip sync thing. You're really we don't we don't like that too much. Yeah, yeah. we try not to do that. But, uh, it was also just the acoustics of of uh, you know the the room down there. So uh, it was quite quite something. Yeah, I'd recommend Volcano Acoustics to everyone who's <laughs> thinking of building a special music listening room. JJ Julius Sun is the lead singer, principal songwriter of Kaleo. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. And where down we go, 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 go. Where down we go, 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 go. So where down we go, go, Way down we go. Dear Prudence is not a person, it's an institution, but it's also a person. It used to be Emily Yaffe, and she came on the show, and we did post-Prudence impact statements. But now Emily has moved on, and in her place is Mallory Ortberg, who I've been reading for years. She's a, she's an internet wit. She's a wit. And now she's Dear Prudence, which means she's both sage and witty. Hello, Mallory. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. Did you were you drawn to the format of the advice column before you became the advice columnist? Oh God, yes. I mean, I, I think like like most good citizens, I was obsessed with reading other people's problems and feeling a strange mix of empathy and superiority, um, and just checking the column every time a new one went up to find out what was going on with everyone else. Uh, I've been doing that since I was a little kid. <laughs> so, uh, were you an Ann Landers, Dear Abby person? You know, you start out with them when they're your only options. Yeah. Uh, and I would always think, this is so short, I want more. Um, yeah, when so you're think, in the advice desert of syndicated columnists. I know, and it's only in the newspaper, and it's only yes. one a day, and yes. maybe you get two or three questions, and right. it's not nearly enough. I remember, uh, like, in high school, uh, kind of first really spending a lot of time online um, reading I think like uh, you know Dan Savage's back catalog, Margot Howard. There's a there's a couple other people whose names are escaping me. But yes, just once I found out that there were like massive back catalogs of advice columns online, I was like, this is this is what I will be doing with all my free time now. What are some of the toughest conundra that you've had to deal with uh, in your time as Dear Prudence so far? You know, some of the most difficult ones are questions that I, I'll feel like an advice columnist isn't really equipped to answer. Like, I'll get a fair number of questions that I think are, are, are a lot about how to live life with, like, chronic suppression or, or when you feel like there's no meaning in what you do on a daily basis. And that's a really difficult question to answer, especially for somebody else and especially for somebody else that you don't know. Um, but Unless the I, person I, asking for that advice is Mike Pence, and then you could be like, well, trust your gut. Yeah, I, 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 you should always trust your gut, Mike. That's that's what I've been telling you for years now. No, 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 um, not Mike Pesca. Mike Pen, oh, Mike Pence. Oh, 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 God. Oh my God. That was I'm my really that was my joke. That if someone that. if someone call, uh, wrote to you and said everything I do is meaningless, and he's Indiana Governor Mike Pence, then you might say trust your gut. I would like to apologize for confusing the two of you for even a second. No problem. Um, sometimes I'll get questions that are just a situation I've never ever dealt with before, and they really should have written someone about twenty years ago when this all started, um, and now. They're just handing someone a massive Gordian knot and saying, like, what What can I do? And, and those are always quite tricky. How, uh, how much have you learned about yourself as you've done this for six months? 
I've learned that I'm a little bit more of an isolationist than I would have guessed. I, I always remember reading uh, advice columns and being irritated when the advice columnist would say, like, this is none of your business and don't meddle, because I'm always kind of more like, well, what happens if you meddle? What if you didn't mind your own business? And I find I'm a little less likely to scold than I would have thought I would be. Uh, I have much more of a sense of, like, well, I certainly don't think you should have done such and such a thing five years ago, but obviously it's done. There's no point berating you about it. Let's just look at the damage control that we can do now. And I, I kind of would have thought I'd be a little more likely to shake my finger and scold people and, and tell them to, to get involved in other people's lives. Is that because you're an acolyte of Jane Austen? I mean, you write a lot about Jane Austen. I know you love Jane Austen. I do. I do. I think there's also a real difference in how one reads an advice column versus how one attempts to deliver an advice column. I feel a, a little bit more of a sense of uh, responsibility as as well as uh, I feel a little bit more compassionate towards people who write in as a, an advice columnist than I, than I would have as a reader. A little bit more, almost proprietary, like, oh, you're writing into me. Like, you're my guy. I got to help you out. But also um, maybe something like if there's a balance between entertaining and helpful as the reader, mm-hmm. you want that balance very much on the entertaining side. And as the writer, right. you don't want it not to be entertaining, but you really want it to be helpful. Of course, because if it, if, it, if it were not about entertainment, I would just be writing people back individually, right? You know, I'd like, you know, press my advice in lavender and mail it off to them and say, this is just between you and me. And here's how you can help live, you know, improve your life. Um, and if it were just entertainment, I'd, you know, probably just choose the letters from people I thought were most in need of being sort of torn apart. And I would just do that publicly. So trying to find a balance between uh, those two things is is always interesting. When I talked to Mallory, uh, you're Mallory, hi. When I talked yes. to Emily about the job, she would say that sometimes she'd give advice and then the readers would weigh in. And every once in a while, she was like, wow, did I goof? Has that happened mm-hmm. yet? I had a question recently where this uh, letter writer knew a, a friend of a friend who had been sexually assaulted years before and uh, found out through her boyfriend that he felt the woman hadn't been sexually assaulted and claimed to have been kind of looking after her all night. So there was this sort of issue of like two conflicting accounts of the evening and a bunch of the readers wrote in to say, hey, kind of based on the information she gives, it's a possibility that her boyfriend was the person who committed the sexual assault, um, which is a reading I had just completely missed in my first go round on the letter. So it wasn't the sort of thing where it was like, yes, this is 100% probably what happened, but it was a likely reading of the story that I had totally missed. So right. I was really so glad. I'm looking at that right now. Someone writes in, you know, regarding how much I is TMI. That's the question. And yes. you write, oof, yes. that's a particularly dark possibility I completely missed. So what's the upshot of that? Are you st- still waiting to see if the original letter writer uh, has anything to say about that? I, I, I hope very much to hear back. I, I, it's the sort of thing I think where you know, so often we we are reluctant to believe painful or awful or violent things about the people we love. But, you know, obviously everyone who commits a a violent crime does have the people that they love. And I I get a lot of questions from people that are sort of like, years ago I was molested and no one in my family believed me, or years ago I was was raped or assaulted in some way and no one in my family listened. And so I think that's super relevant just in terms of when you hear that it's possible that someone you care about did something very violent, very painful, do you engage with it? Do you open your eyes? Do you try to look away? Do you try to deny it? Do you say they could never do something like that? How do you reconcile the the fact that somebody that you love could possibly do something uh, horrible? It's, it's really difficult, and I'm interested to see if they have any kind of a conversation about it. 
Okay, I have a couple of this or that questions that I think will tell me a lot about, you know, when people want to write in for advice, you tell a little bit about yourself. You have a history on the web, but people might want to know what kind of person Mallory is. So let's just go through these, and I think people will be able to get a read on you. And you could uh, explain your answer as much as you'd like, okay? All right, sounds good. All right. Uh, Better word or product, coagulant or analgesic? Oh, Coagulant. How how about salves or balms? Uh, balms, as in there is a balm in Gilead. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, then that's the one. Obviously, obviously, that's such a great expression. Do you prefer saying hot cocoa or hot chocolate? I I really like the way that you delivered the the uh, consonant sounds on cocoa, and I'm going to have to go with that just because hot cocoa, hot cocoa. Yeah, and, it sounds fancier. Yeah, and as the not very funny but person trying to be funny person's way to describe the internet, do you prefer interwebs or the system of tubes construction? Oh boy, I I, I dislike them both intensely. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm that is the right answer. The internet. Sorry. See, this is the kind of sage wisdom and wit that you want from your advice columnist. Mallory Ortberg is the new Prudence. I mean, it's not new anymore. And she has a podcast available to Slate Plus listeners. Thanks so much, Mallory. Good to meet you over the phone. You too. It's so good to know that I'm no longer new. And that it's six months, I'm already old and out of date. Probation period passed. All right. Way to go. And now the spiel. Products I wouldn't know existed unless Ryan Lochte were their one-time sponsor. Airweave. It's a type of mattress. I found out today because they dropped Ryan Lochte. Cineron Candela. Cineron Candela offers a line of skin treatment products that deal with body contouring, wrinkle reduction, acne and vein care, and tattoo removal. Did not know about them until they dropped Ryan Lochte. Ryan Lochte's the greatest endorser ever. If he didn't get in this trouble, I'd have no idea where to get my skin and veins cared for and my tattoos removed. Actually, when you think about it, isn't Ryan Lochte the perfect sponsor for covering up a regrettable choice? Speedo I knew. Speedo sponsored him. Couple questions about the Speedo sponsorship. If you're going to race in a pool, what are you going to use besides Speedo? And if you're not going to be racing in a pool, why would you ever use a Speedo? Makes no sense. But there is another aspect of the Olympics I want to talk about, or a games affiliated and related to the Olympics, and those are the Paralympics. The Paralympics were invented to show that athletes with physical disabilities and challenges should be thought of as more than an afterthought. But now, organizers of the Olympics have disclosed that almost 90% of the tickets to the Paralympics have gone unsold. They're held in the same place as the Olympics. They start in early September in Rio, and almost no one will be showing up. And this includes some countries who might not be able to afford to travel to the games. Normally, the organizers give them grants, fund their travel. That's not even coming through. This is Sir Philip Craven, who is in charge of the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee. Never before in the 56-year history of the Paralympic Games have we faced circumstances like this. No, not ever before in their 56-year history. But before that, back when disabled or impaired athletes were an afterthought, that's when you'd have to go back to see a circumstance like this. So what does that make these athletes now today? Here's another data point. 
the Russians will be banned from the Paralympics. There is massive evidence that they cheated as a country, a nationally run program that definitely included Olympians and Paralympians alike. It worked. Russia won almost 40% of the medals in the last Paralympic Games in London. And they won by, to some extent, by doping their athletes. Now, if doping athletes violates the Olympic creed where medals aren't the most important thing, but really kind of we know they are, it truly insults the idea of the Paralympics. Here again is Philip Craven of the IPC. I believe the Russian government has catastrophically failed its para-athletes. Their medals over morals mentality disgusts me. So that was a couple weeks ago. Today, when the appeal of the Russian ban was upheld, they will be banned. He took a different tone. He said, it's not a day for celebration. We have enormous sympathy for the Russian athletes who will now miss out. This is the stance that the Olympics could have taken. Were they as bold as the Paralympics? Another way to look at it is it's easier to harshly punish Paralympians. The Paralympic Games exist, of course, to prove that Paralympians are not an afterthought. Now, don't get me wrong. A strong countrywide ban would have been possible for the Olympics. It would have been defensible. Uh, It had its problems, but it would have been defensible. So what we're seeing now, though, is a tougher punishment visited upon the more vulnerable population. And I think it doubly shames the IOC, if anything. But also... There's plenty of condemnation left over for the Russians because the Russians have responded to this ban by obfuscating, sidestepping their own culpability and weaponizing their Paralympians. Whenever something bad happens in the world, the Russians resort to propaganda. They produce these videos which feature Paralympians looking into the camera and asking, why have you done this to me? Why Russian government? Oh, no, no, not Russian government. Why Paralympic committee? Here's London silver medalist in judo, Tatiana Savostyanova. And she's saying, sometimes I would come up to my coach and start crying because it hurt so much. But he would say, hold on, Tatiana, hold on. You've got to keep going for the sake of the Paralympics. And then a graphic comes on the screen. It says, hashtag, despite pain. And then the word pain changes and it becomes despair. So despite despair, hashtag despite circumstance, hashtag despite politicians, despite everything. I have an idea for the Russians. Maybe the Russian economy would be in a little better shape. Yeah, oil's hurt. Yeah, the ruble plunge after the Western boycott when they shot down that Dutch plane in Ukraine. But maybe things would be better in the Russian economy if the majority of Russia's scientific efforts were put into something besides doping athletes and poisoning dissidents. Yeah, did you read this article in the New York Times on Sunday? They are just cutting edge when it comes to not cutting, but edging their dissidents off this planet. I Look, look, I'm not saying you totally have to eschew every bit of budgetary line item, every R&D for poisoning. We all need a good government poisoning program applied to a steering wheel that might seep through the skin or an umbrella-based poison. That's definitely necessary. But, you know, Korea, they're obsessed with cloning. And in the U.S., everything's all, let's go green. Elon Musk, he's South African. He wants to invent an electric car. 
The Russians, they're like, we've got the poisoning space. That's what we do. All right, we'll do something else. Sometimes when the mind runs a little dry on good ideas for poisoning, we'll direct those efforts into doping. Doping and poisoning. Poisoning and doping. And sometimes the two research areas dovetail, right? I'm working on a blood doping protocol. It's not really working. Oh, my God, I just killed a shot putter. Hey, don't throw the shot putter out with the bathwater. That could work as a poison. Or on the other side, you know, you're trying to poison a guy, but it turns out he's now a silver medalist in the steeplechase. That could work for doping. But until then, we have a few athletes who overcame their physical hardship to be victimized by their government. And they're made to weep in videos put online as propaganda. Like discus thrower Alana Gorlova. Here she is saying, when my coach told me I had a chance to make the Paralympic Games, I was inspired for a second time. And there comes that hashtag thing, despite pain, despite despair, despite circumstances. By the way, I looked up all these hashtags. No one is writing about them except despite pain. And the the despite pain one, though, they have a nice picture to uh, some photographer who specializes in BDSM stuff. There's a flogging going on. Anyway... There's Elena Gorlova, made to cry by the Russians. I have my own set of hashtags. Despite cheating, despite cynicism, despite shamelessness, despite unrepentance, despite being caught. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Chris Berube. Working for you, they work for me too. Just producer since August of 2016. Steve Lichtai produces Slate Podcasts. He also fights mesothelioma. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's a man of class. He's a man of action. And he's won over a billion dollars in class action suits. Bowers, he'll turn your pain to rain. The gist. We can help you get the money that you deserve. The gist is determined that the money you deserve is nothing. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.